Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast for people who help people with HIV. Brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. Here's your host, Bob Sidlow. Hello. Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast series for medical providers, nurses, and community health workers. The goal of this program is to inform and share best practices related to care for people with HIV and is brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center, a regional partner of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. I'm Bob Sidlow, your host, the director of the Connecticut AETC. I'll be joined by my co-host, Sharon McKay, a curriculum development and evaluation specialist with Connecticut AETC. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Justice. Dr. Justice studied biology at Radcliffe College at Harvard University and attended medical school at Yale University. She went on to earn a Master of Science in Clinical Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania and a PhD in Healthcare Systems at the Wharton School. In 2003, she assumed the role of Chief of Internal Medicine at the VA Medical Center in West Haven, Connecticut, a role she held until 2015. She continues her research at both the VA and in the Department of Internal Medicine at Yale School of Medicine, and she mentors up-and-coming clinical researchers. Among her many roles in clinical practice and research, Dr. Justice is the primary investigator of the Veterans Aging Cohort Study, a project that has been continuously funded since 1997 to compare medical diagnoses and outcomes of a large, matched set of veterans with and without HIV. This project has included many collaborators over the decades and has generated over 400 publications with numerous findings about the impact of HIV in terms of medical outcomes, psychosocial impacts, and comorbidities. Our goal in this interview today is to dig a little into the methodologies of the VAX study and to look at some of the major findings. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Justice. Welcome to HIV Update. We're very pleased to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So let's start by just asking you if you can help our listeners understand the scope and organization of the VAX. Sure. So... uh... I wanted as a fellow to create what I called the Framingham of HIV research. In other words, I wanted to create a large cohort study where we could follow people with HIV as they lived their lives and understood what was alike and different for them living with HIV than people who were demographically similar to them but did not have HIV. And uh, I was rotating through the VA hospital at the time and realized that the VA's National Electronic Medical Record might be a really wonderful place in which to be able to do that because the data was already electronically recorded. We didn't have to pay a lot of people at all the different sites to record the data separately. So that was the sort of kernel of insight I had back when I was a resident and fellow. Uh, and I began by getting two career development awards to do that at three VAs, because at that time, the data wasn't centrally stored. You had to pull the data from each of the VA sites. And so we started doing that. Uh, and that was pretty painstaking, as you might guess. I can imagine. <laughs> um, and then over the years, we were able to roll that out um, to a national study. But at the time when I had to pull it from each of the sites, I also then uh, uh, enrolled patients 
at those sites so that I could ask them survey data, I could ask the providers questions. Uh, we even did focus groups with both patients and providers about their experiences with both the care of those with HIV and what life was like for those with HIV and how they motivated themselves to try to practice healthier behaviors like decreasing their alcohol use or substance use, et cetera. So what kinds of factors did you match people for? Well, because the VA is a national system of care, uh, people who come to the VA for care are more like each other than just a random two patients that you might pick. So that helped right there. Uh, we matched on race, ethnicity, and age, and gender sort of by default, because most of the people in the VA who get care are men. Now, there are not an inconsequential number of women getting care for HIV in the VA, but they are still a minority of the overall sample. Uh, so, and so when you were looking at the data um, on, on your patients, so, so I understand you matched people for age and race and ethnicity and gender, but what other kinds of factors can you pull out in your analysis? Well, because the VA has what we call a paperless electronic record, basically everything about that patient's care is in the electronic record. Now, before people get really worried, Clearly, this is very carefully monitored to make sure that patient's confidentiality is protected. Uh, we de-identify the data when we're analyzing it to make sure that people's individual identities are not identified. And certainly, the Human Investigations Committee closely monitors what we do. I just want to be clear on that because I know people worry about that when we talk about electronic records. But the beauty of electronic records is that a patient who's seen in five different facilities, we can identify that that's the same person. You know, so folks who spend their winters in Florida and their summers in Connecticut, we can pick that up, which that's becomes a, that's amazing. Important. Yes, and it becomes increasingly important as you're following people over time. We have patients in the data set who've been in care for 20 years. So we really can describe their experience of aging with HIV or without HIV and compare it, which, which I think is very exciting and, and very informative. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. So, um, so I'm curious, this kind of leads me to a question I had about your study when I was doing my background work. Um, you, you said that you have some patients who have been on, in care for 20 years, but when you, um, like, how, how do you, how can you stratify your patients? You must have some patients who've been in care for HIV for 20 years, but some who've been in care for less than that. And so how do you kind of stratify that and um, use that information when you're, when you're looking for? Um, so this is why you need epidemiologists doing these analyses. <laughs> right. Um, so we enroll new subjects every year as new people come into the system. We pay attention to when people are initially diagnosed. Uh, I know at one point you had asked me about what do you do about folks who come in are HIV negative and convert. That's a very small minority of the people without HIV, as you might guess, because the prevalence of HIV is relatively low in the VA. It's only about 1%. Uh, but we can identify when people do that and we censor them as a control when they convert and then enroll them as a positive going forward. So we do time segments of observation and someone can actually contribute data to the uninfected window and to the infected window if necessary. Interesting. Um, so sort of related to that, I'd like to ask you about this um, annual requirement you have for new enrollment. Uh, one of the um, 
things I was reading about the project is that you have a 5% um, new enrollment each year. Well, so that's for the survey cohort. Okay. We pull in the overall sample, we pull everyone who is HIV positive. So over the course of the study, that's been more than 60,000 people. Wow. And when we identify those people, we then match them to two uninfected people who are demographically similar by age, race, gender, and bring them into the sample. In the survey cohort, because we want to make sure we still are getting surveys on a, a representative sample, that's the group that we add 5% in every year to make sure we um, still have a representative survey. So, oh, I see. So that you're always getting, uh, because people may uh, be deceased, people may leave the VA, um, be lost to care. Very, okay, I see. So, so for that, you keep on adding new people every year so that you're always having some enough people. You always have this sort of the same number, roughly the same number of people being surveyed. Got it. Got it. Thank you. So um, can we talk a little bit about methodologies and some of your findings? Um, I saw that um, in the first wave of results, there included a, a lot of surveys of participants and their providers, and that the scope of these surveys is really broad, uh, including a lot of personal information about lifestyle, health, drug and alcohol use, um, even religious observances, and some social interactions. What were some of the key findings of this phase of the study? Well, it's interesting. Um, we're continuing to mine that data. It's been very, very rich data. Uh, important early on were, was information about uh, things that we didn't have in the electronic record necessarily. So now the VA routinely asks people about alcohol use, for example, but at the beginning of the study, they didn't. Uh, same thing with smoking behavior and exercise, uh, which are obviously very important in health behaviors. Similarly, by asking the providers, we could ask them, how sick do you think this patient is? Um, so that we could then look at whether or not we could actually improve the physician's assessment of the patient's condition by using the data that we were collecting. Um, so that data has continued to be a very rich uh, goldmine for us in terms of gaining those understandings. W one study that was only very recently completed actually was a study looking at religious beliefs and practices. Uh, that demonstrated that people who run, regularly attended church services uh, actually did better in, in many regards than people who didn't after you controlled for severity of illness and a number of other factors, which was interesting. Um, and you know, one could speculate about a number of things, but, but that was sort of an important finding given how um, mixed the experience is for many gay men for religion. Uh, and in fact, there was there were some differences by region of the country in that regard, for example. So there were some very interesting aspects there. Um, if I can just add, Sharon, before I know you've got a quick. Another thing that we did is we tried to create an index of, of um, social connectedness and resources. And we were able to show that that had a big impact on how people did as well, um, which I thought was also quite interesting. So the surveys have, have continued to be a very important source of data for us. Oh, yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you. I was wondering if the people who do better and uh, who attend religious services maybe have a higher social connectedness through their Well, we did try to control for that as well when we looked at this, but, you know, all those factors sort of go together. Don't Interesting. They? Interesting. 
So I noticed also that you had some neuropsychiatric assessments in the early work. I'm not sure if you're still doing that. I know. <laughs> well, uh, so the uh, neuropsych, formal neuropsych testing is, is a somewhat painful experience. Uh, I actually had them give it to me before I had them do it with the patients. Really? <laughs> hour process. <laughs> and it was the only time throughout this whole study that I had patients threatening to disenroll because they didn't oh, enjoy the wow. neuropsych. <laughs> This was a number of years ago that we did the neuropsych evaluations, and we were trying to compare uh, neuropsychiatric health for people with and without HIV, and we did not find big differences at that time. Uh, as probably you're aware, uh, as people are aging with HIV, one of their big concerns is their cognitive functioning and whether or not they will develop dementia as they age. Not an unusual concern for anyone aging, uh, you know, not unique to aging with HIV. You know, I, I remember um, reading studies and presentations that have been uh, I've attended about HIV AIDS neurocognitive disorder. And so does this, um, you know, I know that's a, a, that's a it's a slightly different thing as uh, uh, in, in a way, but that there um, there's the concern. It's about a cognitive decline. Um, and so did any of these studies uh, use look through the lens of uh, HIV AIDS neurocognitive or HAND, it's commonly referred to as HAND. So um, my problem with HAND is that it is a diagnosis uh, of exclusion. And in most cases, those exclusions aren't made. Uh, and yet folks who are aging with HIV are subject to all the things that cause folks without HIV to develop dementia as they age as well, sure. cerebral vascular problems, et cetera. So I am not convinced that HAND is that useful in a population of people aging with HIV with suppressed virus. Okay. Um, and I, I think it's very important to recognize that caveat with suppressed virus, you know, continuously suppressed virus. Yeah. I think in that setting, uh, it's a much more uh, challenging problem of multimorbidity, polypharmacy, healthy behaviors. Uh, than the way we thought about hand, say, 10 years ago, when there were loads of folks who weren't suppressed or were only partially suppressed. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for, um, you know, showing, explaining a little bit of the difference there or that it's, um, it's usefulness. I, I know it was something that was talked about um, maybe eight to 10 years ago, quite, quite a bit. Quite a lot, and, yes. And, and it so, still is. Yeah. You're right. It still is. And, you know, there is um, some concern that there are selected people who are aging with HIV who have virus in their central nervous system fluids that you do not detect in their blood samples, but that's a fairly rare circumstance. Mm -hmm. And okay. those people may be experiencing hand because of the burden of virus in the central nervous system. But again, that's, that's more the exception than the rule. Well, thank you. DNA banking, have, have you used the banked DNA uh, from the study? So, so we have a, a bank of not only DNA, but blood samples that are divided up into pellets and serum and, and DNA and other things. And over the years, we've been slowly building out a library. So we have now DNA, proteomics, methylation data. Uh, we also have another number of inflammatory markers, as I'm sure you're both aware. There's a lot of interest in chronic inflammation in HIV, so we've been pulling in that. We have uh, hepatitis C status, hepatitis B status, CMV status. So we're really trying to build out a very complete physiologic picture 
at that snapshot when we got those samples. And those samples were collected back in 2007. So we now have many clinical events that have followed after people had those samples. And we're looking at associations with things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. Mm. So that's, again, a, a growingly rich resource as we've built out those other factors and begin to see people have clinical events. Have you, have you done any work on the DNA, banked DNA samples, looking at DNA damage and particularly at mitochondrial DNA damage from people who say were in some of the earlier forms of antiretroviral therapy? So we are interested in doing that. I actually have submitted a couple of grants to that. Uh, we haven't gotten those grants funded yet, yeah. uh, but we are very interested. I'm actually interested in mitochondrial DNA damage more generally. Um, you may or may not be aware that there are medications that people without HIV take that also have mitochondrial injury associated mm -hmm. with them. Uh, and so while folks who are aging with HIV may be particularly susceptible because you're building on multiple sources, uh, it's not unique to folks with HIV. And so I think it would be very valuable um, as people are on medications for many decades now, whether or not they have HIV, right? It's just folks with yeah. HIV start that process 10 years earlier than people without. I think we really need to understand the whole issue of mitochondrial injury. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know one of your early goals with this was not only to study the um, uh, HIV over, over the years, but also just to be able to try to apply that to chronic diseases more generally. And I think you're right. Mitochondrial DNA damage is a, is an area um, wide open for looking at all kinds of chronic diseases and how it's, uh, how it may be impacting how mitochondrial activity and damage may be impacting those processes. I would add to that methylation patterns, uh, methylation aging, for example, which we have started to look at. We've had a couple papers we've published on that to understand not how many years old are you, but what does your methylation pattern tell us about your aging process and the amount of inflammation you've been exposed to? Yeah, it's like there's a DNA age that's maybe different than your actual, um, <laughs> the, the years since your birth, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I saw that you had a paper um, on DNA methylation in the VAX groups where that showed that there were um, genes that were involved in immune responses and inflammation um, yeah. that were predictive when they were methylated in certain ways were predictive of, of mortality in right. um, patients, yeah. Which, which all lends into that whole picture of what is, what is driving any um, added burden of comorbidity as people age with and without HIV. A lot of it is chronic inflammation. The issue is simply that people with HIV have additional reasons to have chronic inflammation, but that adds on to other factors that are true for people with and without HIV. And so understanding those patterns is, I think, a very important way of gaining insight on how to intervene and right. not have people age as rapidly. Right. Yeah, and the number one complaint for people with HIV is fatigue, chronic fatigue. Yes. And you know, how do you tease that out against in some ways against a person who's aging and faces fatigue from aging. But um, definitely I know that that's a, uh, from the years of doing um, a HIV outreach and working in the HIV population, that fatigue is a very complicated uh, issue for um, uh, clients and patients. I completely agree. Uh, and as you say, it's an issue for people who are aging more generally as well. There is excess fatigue, there appears to be excess fatigue among people with HIV. And understanding how we can intervene on that, I think, is, is key to having a good quality of life. Mm -hmm.
So Dr. Justice, I'd like to give our listeners a sense uh, that is our listeners who may not be um, affiliated with the VA, a sense of the computerized patient record system at the VA and what a treasure trove it must be for you. So could you tell us a little bit about how you utilize this for the studies? Sure. So when people receive care in the VA, a lot of data is recorded into the electronic record in a way that is directly analyzable. So for instance, they're asked about uh, quantity and frequency of alcohol use, and that's entered into the computer when they come in. Their blood pressure is entered into the computer. Their temperature is entered into the computer. Their pulse oxygenation is entered into the computer. All the labs that are ordered on them are entered into analyzable fields. So I can go in and I say, what was the hemoglobin? What was the white cell count? Uh, what were the chemistries, et cetera? And that's true for everyone in my study. So, you know, 180,000 people um, huge. <laughs> over, over a very extended period of time. So we can look at trajectories. You know, are people drinking more or drinking less? Are people quitting their smoking or continuing to smoke? Are people's blood pressures getting under control with their antihypertensives or aren't they? Are their is their diabetes under control or not? Are they receiving the medications they should be receiving for their diabetes and their heart disease, et cetera? Is the, is the pharmacy data also included in the CPRS? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And what's important about the pharmacy data in the VA, because the VA pays for the medications, it's not just the prescriptions that are written. It's the actual medication fills that are sent to the patient. So we can look at fill refill patterns to get a very good sense of whether or not people are taking their medicine. Wow. So one tool that has come from your study is the VAX index, which can predict the likelihood of hospitalization or mortality in people with HIV based on a number of factors. Can, can you describe this for our listeners? Sure. So when I first started to do work on HIV, everybody was focused on CD4 cell counts. And then once we had the ability to measure viral titers, viral titers, right? It's the virus stupid. I don't know if you remember that phrase. Uh, and of course, it was the virus, stupid, until right. we had the virus under control. Yeah. That was an right. absolutely very accurate statement. But once we were able to suppress the virus, um, the viral load and the CD4 count remained important, but not nearly the drivers they were before we could suppress the virus. And it turned out that a number of other laboratory factors, anemia, white blood cell count, body mass index, uh, whether or not the person had hepatitis C co-infection, what the state of their kidneys were in terms of renal function, what the state of their liver was in terms of liver function, their cardiovascular disease burden, et cetera, were also important and in many cases were even more important because if people started uh, antiretroviral therapy when their CD4 counts were still reasonably high, CD4 count and viral load were no longer the drivers. It was these other factors. And yet, those factors behave not in isolation. It's all the same person, right? So if I have HIV and I have chronic inflammation, I'm at greater risk of having anemia than my demographically matched colleague who doesn't have HIV, right? And understanding that, understanding that HIV has ramifications beyond viral load and CD4 count was part of what I was trying to do with Vax but also recognizing that those conditions are not in isolation. If I have HIV and I have diabetes, I'm sicker than if I just have HIV, right? Those conditions interact with each other. 
and they both cause inflammation, which can drive anemia, et cetera. So what I was trying to do by creating the VAX index was a way of measuring how sick is this person overall? And can I track when they get better and when they get worse before they get so sick that I can't do anything about it, right? So can I, can I create an early warning sign, basically? So we began with labs that people were routinely getting anyway because they thought they were important and tried to put them together in an index to give an overall assessment of what the risk was for that patient at that visit in time. Uh, and we've been able to show that it actually is highly predictive, dramatically more predictive than only looking at CD4 count and viral load, uh, dramatically more predictive than only looking at age, uh, and more predictive than looking at age, CD4, and viral load together, so that those other factors are also important. And they're important over time. If someone's VAX index goes up, they are sicker than when it comes down. Mm. Uh, and their risk of short-term mortality and hospitalization and um, other frailty-related outcomes like falls and fractures goes up. And if we can bring it down, their risk goes down. Uh, and we've been able to show that in randomized trials where they collected the data over time. We showed it in a trial where they were doing interruptions. Remember back when antiretroviral treatment would occasionally be interrupted? There was oh, a, yes. yeah. right. Perfect. We were able to show that the VAX index tracked very closely with that beyond CD4 and viral load. Um, we're able to show that people who improve their health behaviors can improve their VAX index. So it's, it's basically a, an instantaneous assessment of how sick is this person right now to try to help target interventions to improve um, their level of illness. So, so clinicians who work with people with HIV can really use this all the time to yes. sort of monitor what's going on with their patients. And then I guess you can look at it and sort of, if you have a VAX index that suggests a problem, you can sort of just dig around through the data and say, well, this looks like it might be related to your diabetes or to your BMI or to right. your anemia. Right, so these are labs that, that uh, care providers are used to interpreting for where should I intervene, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a list of suspects when we see somebody is anemic. We have a list of suspects when we see somebody's losing weight. We have a list of suspects when we see somebody's renal function is getting worse or their liver function is getting worse. And we would start to look at those lists and say, okay, what, what seems to be the driver here? Can I do something about this? Okay. So um, has the VAX index been validated in non-DNA clinical settings? I'm sorry, it has been, um, but has it been validated for females? Yes, it has. So I'm very pleased to say that because that was, of course, one of the big concerns when we first developed it. So it's been validated in the NA Accord cross-cohort collaboration, which is, I think, 22 different cohorts across Canada and the United States, as well as the ARTCC collaboration, which is largely European cohorts. Uh, and it works as well in women as it does in men. And it works well. We've looked also in um, subgroups of people who are Black, Hispanic, white, older and younger, suppressed virus, not suppressed virus, um, to try to really understand what, what are its weaknesses. But it generally works very, very well. That's great. That sounds like an excellent tool uh, across all kinds of um, patient bases. And actually, it's a good tool for a provider who's um, just trying to get an, uh, a, a good um, snapshot, I think, of what the current situation is with that patient. So, Is it in general use outside of the VA? I know that you have a, you have a calculator online for this. Yes, I was just going to say MDCalc is a calculator that it's a website that lots of uh, providers use to calculate all kinds of things, all kinds of indices. 
uh, the VAX index is on MDCalc. And the nice thing about that is you can access it from your cell phone or from any computer, whether you're a patient or a provider. And it not only will calculate your score, it will give you an interpretation of how what that means yeah. and give you the references that support the validity of the index, which is sort of standard for the way MDCalc does their, mm. their work. Um, there are also health systems that have incorporated the VAX index into their electronic health records so that you can actually see it as you're taking care of the patient. Nice. Does the, do you have that at the VA? I know the VA has another um, mortality, <laughs> hospitalization and mortality index that comes up automatically. So is the VAX something that comes up? Yeah. It, it is not. Um, oh, it's not. <laughs> um, and that's more for political reasons than scientific reasons, if I can say so. Um, I've been able to get more groups outside of the VA to implement it than the VA. The, the VA has a, an index that gets uh, calculated automatically, doesn't it? Um, yes, well, but that has nothing to do with HIV and yeah. it's based on utilization. Oh. It has 150 variables in it and uh, <laughs> it's quite complex. But one of the things that I think is nice about the VAX index is that for a provider who's used to looking at labs, you can immediately see what drives the score mm -hmm. the person had. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with the other index. It's like I said, it's 150 variables with loads of interaction terms and it's not transparent at all. So the big story for today is around HIV and aging. And um, and now how has HIV and long-term use of antiretroviral therapies um, impacted aging? Um, but can we clarify a few things? When you report on HIV and aging, how are you defining this system? So uh, I think this gets back to this issue of how do we take into account how long people have had HIV. Uh, and uh, we do snapshots, so we'll, we'll look at, so for any one study, we decide what is the relevant baseline. So if we're studying outcomes with diabetes, it's obviously the date of diagnosis of diabetes. If we're studying antiretroviral therapy use, it's the initiation of a particular regimen. Um, we certainly take into account what, for, what was their first regimen, et cetera. So we have sort of standard ways of deciding what the baselines are. Uh, and then over time, we may time update our analyses if there are important changes in the person's status. But that really is driven by the question we're asking in that particular study. I see. So basically, it sounds like what you're saying is depending on what you're trying to what you're trying to use the data for, you might look at people who have been on ART for a certain amount of time or who've been on certain kinds of ART or something exactly. like that. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, just to uh, perseverate back to the VAX index for a moment. When we were validating the VAX index, we intentionally took random dates because we wanted to see whether or not the index was equally good no matter when the person was being seen, what point in their care they were being seen, mm -hmm. because we had originally developed it at the point one year after you started ART, and we wanted to make sure it still worked You know, after you've been on ART 20 years, and it does. Mm -hmm. But we thought it was very important to look at that. Right. So. Um, I'm curious, there are so many papers that came out of this study as we were talking about earlier. Um, so I wanted to just ask you, what do you think are some of the main and most interesting findings that you've uh, that you've reported on for people who've had uh, been living with HIV for several decades in terms of how that's impacting their age-related health and comorbidities? So, Honestly, I think that one of the most important messages is one of reassurance. Um, that 
aging with HIV is different than aging without HIV, but it is not dramatically different. It's not as though people who are aging with HIV are going to drop like flies from cardiovascular disease and cancer. Their risk is increased, but it is not many, many fold increased. And uh, there was a very big uh, period of time where people were talking about accelerated aging and that folks with HIV were, you know, 20 years older than their parent age because of but when we actually did careful comparisons with demographically similar folks in care, we found that those differences were much more modest, a matter of a few years, maybe four to five years, not 20 years. Mm. So I, I think the first message is one of reassurance. It is possible to have a good life aging with HIV. Uh, and I also think the message that health behaviors are important. You know, when folks were dying in six months from their HIV diagnosis, uh, they and their providers said, no reason to stop smoking. <laughs> I, uh. <laughs> no reason to, right? Might as well not worry about it, right? Right. It's a totally different scenario now. Right. Now there are many, many things one can do to improve one's life with HIV uh, besides taking, number one, take your antiretrovirals regularly and see your doctor, right? right? But once you've done that, smoking cessation, moderating your alcohol use, avoiding heavy substance use, exercising, all those messages that are in general true are absolutely true for those with HIV mm. and are ways to combat things like fatigue. Mm -hmm. Polypharmacy is something that we need to start tackling both for both people with HIV and without HIV. Mm. Are we doing more harm than good with piling on 10 and 15 medications for a person? Mm -hmm. Do we really know that they're all helping them? Those are the, some of the questions that we're beginning to look at. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I, my most important message, I think, has been one of reassurance. Uh, I think the second message is the VAX index and the fact that it is possible to assess how sick someone is and begin to make plans. Folks with HIV eventually die, just like folks without HIV eventually die, right? And one of the things that I, as a general internist, that I think is important is people need to be allowed to make plans that are appropriate to them. Thinking about when should I transition to an extended care facility? When should I think about end of life planning? Those are still issues um, for everyone who's aging. And I think that part of what we've tried to do is begin to provide information to inform that dialogue. You said that HIV doesn't really accelerate aging, but it rather accentuates it. Can, can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So it, uh, if you remember, I said one of the studies I thought was uh, one of our more important studies was showing that when you actually compared incidents of particular conditions among those with and without HIV who are appropriately matched to each other, so same age group, et cetera, the difference it, at first occurrence of those conditions was not, the age at first occurrence of those conditions was not dramatically different. In, in many cases, it was almost exactly the same. In a few cases, it was about two to four years uh, earlier. Earlier. So if, if, um, if I'm an HIV positive patient with hepatocellular cancer, I might get that hepatocellular cancer a few years ahead of time from the person without HIV, but it's not 20 years earlier. Right. The reason, initially there was this impression that it was so dramatically earlier was because the population of people with HIV was a younger population than the people in care without HIV. 
So whenever the underlying population distribution is different, it's going to look like there's a difference in age when it's just because the underlying population age is different. Does that make sense? Yes. When yes. you match on that and account for that, the difference in age was not dramatic. I'm sorry, I got into that discussion and I've forgotten what exactly the question was you were asking. Can you ask it again? <laughs> well, I think you did answer it actually. Um, in, uh, and it was around accelerating aging. You oh, know, yeah, yeah. Does it accelerate aging or is that accentuated? And I think you did answer that. I think there are some things, you know, um, when I would talk to clients who are newly diagnosed, I'd say, hey, you know, um, you're, this is something you can live with. People have a good quality of life going forward now. There's excellent medications to treat HIV and you can kind of continue on with your everyday life. Um, that uh, the only thing to consider is that, you know, you may have some things that were going to genetically happen to you anyway. They just might happen a little bit earlier, but not um, not dramatically earlier, as far as we know, and that you can still go on and have an excellent quality of life. Um, and so I think this kind of reinforces that same statement that I used to make as an outreach worker, trying to encourage people not to feel hopeless or desperate when this uh, diagnosis comes along. And I agree with all of that. Um, the reason I say um, uh, accentuated rather than accelerated, if you look at any specific condition, cancer, heart disease, et cetera, the differences are not great. But people with HIV tend to have more of them. So that's why I say accentuated. Uh, there's more multimorbidity. Uh, there's a bit more frailty. And again, it is not overwhelming. It's not many fold more. It's a little bit more. There's a statistical acknowledgement, but the statistics don't say this big whopping thing is getting your way and... <laughs> <laughs> and if you, for, for example, uh, many times people have compared aging with HIV with aging with diabetes. Hmm. And there's a lot to be said for that comparison. You know, diabetes also increases your risk of other cancers, right? Diabetes also increases the chances that you'll be frail, right? So it's, it's a similar sort of phenomenon. And of course, the better you manage your diabetes, the less some of those risks are. The better you manage your HIV and get yourself, keep your virus suppressed the better your chances are, the more healthy you are with diabetes, you know, the more you exercise, the less you overeat, the more you watch your diet, the better you do. Similar. Absolutely. Well, those are sort of great protective health activities are always and, and preventative activities are always good. Uh, and we always want to encourage that. And smoking is bad in both. <laughs> it's truly smoking is bad all the way around. Um, so I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into uh, cancer and HIV. Um, I, I found one of the papers that came out of your study recently was about prostate cancer, showing that the likelihood of developing prostate cancer wasn't really impacted that much by HIV, but the Gleason scores, which is a score of the severity of the prostate cancer, was a little bit impacted by the HIV. Yeah. So um, it, prostate cancer was an interesting example because there was a lot of buzz early on that maybe HIV was protected against prostate cancer. I don't know if you remember hearing people oh. say that. Hmm. Uh, and all along as a primary care doc, I was just suspicious that that meant that there was less screening, <laughs> right? Because so many men die with not of prostate cancer, right? As if you're a man and you reach the age of 80, the chances that you have prostate cancer, whether or not it's diagnosed, are something like 90%. Most of those men will never experience symptoms from their prostate cancer before they die of other causes. 
it's a very long from you know not to say that some people don't experience horrendous prostate cancer they certainly do but on average prostate cancer in this country is a fairly slowly progressive condition so if you don't screen for it you don't see it and people die of other things and you don't realize that that person had prostate cancer so it appeared as though those with hiv who were not being screened as much as those without hiv had less prostate cancer but once we started to screen for it or actually look for it or control for whether or not people were screened which is what we did in our study we didn't see any differences in the incidence of prostate cancer now cancers many cancers are inflammatory right that's part of what drives the the, the cancer cascade in general and prostate cancer is an exception so it's not surprising to me that people with hiv might have slightly more advanced prostate cancer when they present um, in part because they have less immune function. And that's part of how we mo monitor uh, early cancers and our body tries to clear them. Right. So if we don't have as good a monitoring system, we may be more susceptible. Do you think that the inflammation from HIV um, might also contribute to this? Absolutely. So, so if you think about, and, and I'm, I'm, the oncologists who are listening to this are probably cringing, okay, but with that caveat. <laughs> Um, there are certain factors that are associated with lots of different kinds of cancer, right? One of them is anything that causes cells to turn over, because every time the cells turn over, there's mitotic division, and you can have errors, right? Genetic errors. So inflammation is one of the things that does that, right? If you have infl inflammation, the cells die off faster, you try to replace the cells, you have some mitotic division, you have some errors introduced. If you then don't have as good an immune system monitoring those changes and getting rid of the cells that are bad, the cells grow, right? right. So that's one of the, the sort of um, primordial soups for cancer, unfortunately. And many of those factors are present in folks who are aging with HIV. Do you think, and, and I, this is, uh, you've already mentioned, and uh, we all kind of have been hearing a lot about this, that screening for prostate cancer is um, kind of tricky right now, like it's not always worth it. Do you think given that um, you saw this increase in severity in prostate cancer in people with HIV, that it would be worth being uh, worth screening people with HIV? So um, <laughs> that's obviously a complicated question, right? Yeah. Um, I think ideally it would be great if we could screen people who are at risk for having bad prostate uh, and, and actually the study that I'm involved with, uh, with the Department of Energy and the VA nationally looking at prostate cancer, and this is not in HIV only, this is looking at prostate cancer and some genetics of prostate cancer more generally. We're trying to develop a, an index that predicts uh -huh. who with localized prostate cancer is likely to go on to metastatic disease and should get treatment. Because ultimately those are probably the people we should be screening. I see. And identify and then, who's at risk for really having nasty prostate cancer. Those are the folks we should screen. I see. So would you add HIV to that index? Well, uh, I can't say yes, mm -hmm. but that mm -hmm. would be worth asking. Yeah. Okay. I see. So you might have um, 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 an index that might say, well, here's a person who has a genetic predisposition to prostate cancer and they're HIV positive. That might tip the balance and, and say, and let's get them. They smoke or whatever okay. else might okay. be. Okay. So, you know, a, a different way to think about HIV and aging is to consider 
how a new HIV infection manifests in people who are older versus, you know, um, a, a diagnosis when you're young and uh, someone who's at more an advanced age and, and how, how does that age at time of infection um, uh, impact HIV outcomes? I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, I, I'm actually involved right now in a, um, uh, a review that we're writing up for Lancet HIV uh, for a series that they are having, talking about delayed diagnosis. And around the world, I've just done a literature review of this, around the world, one of the major predictors of delayed presentation for HIV care is age. The older you are, the less likely you are to present for care. And most of that has to do with being tested. It's not that, so an older person may be more likely if they test positive to get themselves into care, but they're less likely to have that test. True. And in the United States, right, there's an age limit to the universal screening record. <laughs> which yes. there should not be, right? Correct. And many of us have been railing against that for a long time, but it's still there. And even in places like South Africa, where the prevalence of HIV in people who are over 65 clearly justifies universal screening, they're not doing universal screening in that age group. So I think it's incredibly important that we think about universal screening in people who are older with HIV, certainly with anybody who has any kind of a risk factor, but by risk factor, I don't necessarily mean personal risk factor. I mean, living in an area where there's decent prevalence of HIV because risk factor ascertainment in older people is a dicey business, right? Physicians don't ask about sexual practices. If you're older, if you are older than the physician that's interviewing you, they don't ask you about sex. They assume you're true. not having sex, which this is, is true, right? But this is true, right? We both know that. Yes. Um, so, I, I think that we really need to go to more of a universal testing model. You know, the VA has implemented a universal one-time test recommendation. And the way we were able to implement that is we made a reminder, we put in a clinical reminder in the EHR and all of a sudden everybody was getting their HIV test. Which is and remarkable. Because, well, it normalized it, right? It was no longer right. stigmatizing. It was not, I think you have a risk factor, therefore I'm going to test you. Well, what risk factor do you think I have, right? It's right. just simply, we have a policy that everybody should be tested at least once. Right, and I think for federal qualified health, health centers that we work with a lot in Connecticut, um, they have the opt-out testing so that it's part of routine care, it's routine testing. And unless you know, you, you suddenly say, you know, the doctor's doing a, a, a regular visit with you and says, oh, you know, we're gonna get your regular blood work or I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna throw an HIV and test, test, test in there. Uh, we do this for all of our patients, but you know, taking a sexual health history, taking a behavioral health history, knowing their activities. I, I know it's hard to believe, but people over 50 or 55 still have sex. They still can sometimes <laughs> fall into active drug use, Absolutely. whether they had drug use patterns young when they're younger or they're despondent at their point in life and they're aged. Um, and I don't like the term aged, especially in the HIV world, because it's <laughs> like 45 and up, or it's some <laughs> old But um, I, I know that, you know, it's uh, contrary to our cultural beliefs and norms about people who are um, aging or aged. Um, but that um, my recollection from a statistic that was available when I was doing outreach was that you are a significantly higher risk of having a diagnosis of AIDS if you are 65 and older within one year of your yes. um, initial yes. diagnosis. Right. And so that's 
speaks volumes to the, it's not just necessarily a late in care item either. I mean, um, you know, they're not getting screened earlier in their lives when they should be, but they're also, you know, they're immune compromised as aging causes us to become more and more immune compromised over time. Right. And uh, of course, we all know that folks over 50 and 65 still have sex, right? If they are infected and don't know that they're infected, they're going right. to other people, mm-hmm. right? And some of those people are going to be in their same age strata and some of them aren't going to be. But it will increase the prevalence in their age strata almost certainly. And when you think about uh, sexual practices around the world, this is, this is a real issue. Everybody around the world, people are aging, thank God, with HIV. That's a wonderful thing. But we really need to think about how to prevent new incident cases in this age group as this happens, because that age group doesn't think of themselves as being at risk. Their providers don't think about them as being at risk. They're not being routinely tested. And they're at low risk for, um, you know, um, pregnancy, right? Because they're, you know. Right, they're out of childbearing years. And and as far as they're concerned, they're years past the knowledge about STDs and STIs and stuff. Right, and by the way, it's kind of hard to use a condom if you have have erectile dysfunction. So, right, there's lots of stuff that contributes Mm. to this problem. Although there is a little blue pill that has, that's a whole other category of why because <laughs> right. it extends the sex life of people who might not have been able to continue um, ha- having you know robust sexual activity and good for them. Um, but I think it's something that we have to always consider that um, this older population, they're still at risk for HIV. Uh, you know, I know you don't think that your um, friend's grandparents are uh, haven't still uh, getting busy as it were, but you know, <laughs> Nonetheless, people as they age are just, you know, they still need to be um, engaged in care and preventative care and screening. And this is one of those, at least once in a lifetime, I agree with you, no matter what the age, um, 65 is a silly cutoff. Right. So, and um, if I can just add to that as a primary care doc, many older people are experiencing challenges and continuing to be sexual active. You know, women have vaginal dryness, men have erectile dysfunction. There's all kinds of stuff. They want to talk to their providers about that, but they are inhibited about bringing up the subject themselves. If yeah. the provider brings it up, they're relieved. They want to talk about yeah. it, in my experience. Not that they say, oh, you don't think I do that, do you? It's, it's oh, yes, I'm really having trouble. Can you make some recommendations? Could I see somebody, et cetera? Um, so it's also a quality of life thing in general to have those conversations. Absolutely. And, norm, and making sure that those conversations around um, sexual activity or sexual behaviors or uh, any of those things has to be a normalized conversation. It can't be a stigmatizing. Um, so are you um, uh, and, and, you know, sexually active? It can't be that. Can't or, be or, that. Or, worse, or worse, you're not sexually active, are you? Yeah, do your husband and <laughs> you and your partner still have any sex? I mean, you know, you have- <laughs> Ideally, you really want to be positive and say, hey, you know, I like to talk to all my clients or all my patients about, you know, things that are important and put them at risk for things. Um, are you, you know, are you still sexually active? And, um, you know, uh, we want to do a one-time lifetime screening for HIV. Um, and, you know, you, it's amazing what people will tell you if you give them the opportunity and really the slightest question, tell me more. Or <laughs> just, just, just making it a normalized conversation makes a, a big difference in how much uh, information and uh, resources you can glean back and provide better quality care. It makes me wonder if there are any studies out there of STD or HIV or just more generally different S- STD 
infection rates in retirement communities, nursing homes, assisted living homes? You know, there there have been studies, and um, there there was a scenario that was happening um, when I was doing outreach here in Connecticut, where um, when the Social Security checks came into a senior living facility, the men would be able to pay for the um, nearby resource uh, sex worker, and um, they would pick up um, HIV, but then, um, or other STIs. And then when they sort of ran out of money for the rest of the month, they are very few men are in these senior living facilities, the, the proportion of men versus women. So they, they could return to their own uh, social group that are living nearby. And so some of those people were turning up with STIs or yeah. HIV. So yeah. that's a phenomenon that's, that's definitely documented. And there are statistics out there to yeah. provide. And I'm sure they're under, under the, the stats are way under because yeah. it's, but it is definitely a consideration. So um, I actually was just reading an article from South Africa about this. Um, and uh, as women age, their sexual interest often declines a bit. Um, so the uh, so many married couples, um, the man has sex both with his partner and outside. So it's a similar story. And the outside sex is often with younger individuals. And in South Africa, that means younger women who are more likely to be HIV positive, right? And that's one of the ways that the epidemic in older individuals is being fueled. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Thank you. So speaking of nursing homes uh, and assisted living and so forth, um, one of the impacts of people aging with HIV is that there probably now is a population that's entering assisted living and nursing care. Um, What are some of the issues that you've been hearing about Dr. Justice uh, with respect to people with HIV entering some of these facilities? Well, I've been trying to encourage everyone to study this phenomenon because I think it's going to be a growing issue. Uh, It is certainly true that there are increasing numbers. uh, And I think that the training that people have or do not have uh, for dealing with folks who are aging coming into nursing homes is not there yet. Um, And so this is, we really don't have answers for you yet. I can tell you as, a younger member of a whole generation of people, some of whom had to go into nursing care facilities who did not have HIV. It is not a trivial problem to place a loved one in a good nursing home. It's it's quite an endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. And that's if they don't have any reasons not to be able to be placed. Right. Uh, the minute you talk about having an infectious condition or uh, socioeconomic challenges, it gets to be a whole lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Back in the bad old days when people were dying so rapidly with HIV, there were nursing homes that were dedicated specifically to caring for those folks. And the people who who, um, ran those facilities were absolutely dedicated to that population. We're now talking about a different scenario where the folks with HIV are going to be entering nursing homes that are not dedicated to HIV, may not be highly educated about the care of folks with HIV, and may have a lot of inaccurate assumptions about those folks. And uh, I think that's going to be a growing issue as we move forward. Absolutely. I think there's definitely a need for this kind of knowledge to be um, made available. And um, in fact, it should be part of a sort of a standard curriculum in nursing homes around the nation 
to, because there are people with HIV who are, you know, continually going in and out of the care system. And they're not all necessarily aged people, but people with complex medical conditions yeah, that end up in a rehab facility for a period of time. Um, and so it may not be necessarily just a long term. Uh, it may be there for six months, um, but they definitely, um, people who work in this field, we want to make sure they're culturally competent, that they have awareness about the importance of um remaining on ART for antiretroviral therapy for these clients and, um, you know, understanding their risks for acquiring HIV, which are little to none using universal precautions. So you should be perfectly fine. And, um, but that if they don't know this information, then they can either mistreat or undertreat uh, the patients leading to, you know, poorer health outcomes to um, people or, struggling. Or refuse them admittance to the facility. Right refuse them care, no. which is, a, that would also, that was also a terrible thing. Um, right. We want to make sure people have access to care. Well, I think we've actually um, reached the end of our time here. We've spent a great deal of time um, discussing, you know, HIV and aging and all of the implications, your um, uh, incredible work uh, with the VAX index and the VA system. And um, so I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate um, the insights that I've gained here. Um, Sharon? Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Justice. This has been a really fun interview. I've gotten a lot of great ideas for my own work um, about some new educational uh, initiatives, maybe, and also maybe try to find somebody to interview on the podcast who might be able to talk about experiences in a, uh, a long-term care facility um, working with people with HIV. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate your interest.